Coming to you from the Tar Heel State, this is the Carolina Commercial Real Estate Connection, bringing you industry insights and hot takes from Carolina real estate experts, helping you begin, grow, and scale your commercial real estate portfolio. And now your hosts, Tony Johnson and Cameron Pearson. Welcome back to Carolina Commercial Real Estate Connection. Today we have uh, Patrick Stoy with us. Um, Patrick owns MC Capital here in Wilmington, North Carolina. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me, Tony. Appreciate it. Cameron? Yeah, man. Thanks so much for being here. We look forward to hearing your your story. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's start off with a quick background on you and a background on your company, Patrick. Yeah, my um, background is my grandfather, who I grew up with out on a farm, um, was also superintendent for a construction company. So needless to say, as a uh, young child, I was uh, working in the uh, gardens and then going to job sites and uh, being around construction at a very early age. And, uh, you know, it really taught me a work ethic at a very young age to, you know, to work hard, really kind of where it all started. Um, if I go back and um, look at the, uh, you know, what what's pivoted me and got me here, I would definitely say that my grandparents have helped out a lot just from teaching me that the work ethic side. And then also the most interesting side is teaching me what not to do. Um, they had some great opportunities um, where they lived in Charlotte and had opportunity to buy land right across from the Charlotte Motor Speedway now compared to the farm that we own. So that was lesson number one. He She wanted to be, my grandma wanted to be a little further out. Lesson number two is my wow. grandmother growing up in the uh, Great Depression, she wanted the cash immediately because they had lost everything. And so my grandfather was actually for Food Town, which is now known as Food Line. He built the first store and they gave him the option to take stock or cash. And of course, my grandmother said, take cash. And now Salisbury has more millionaires per capita than anywhere in North Carolina. So missed that boat. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, the third story that sticks in my head um, is that. They had some bought some lots out on Baden Lake and they didn't want to be on the water side because they were scared the kids would get out there in the water and uh, have an issue. So they bought them on the inside. So needless to say, I still own that lot now. <laughs> Pay taxes on it every year. So it was, you know, out from a work ethic and also from a a take risk, you know, don't let an opportunity mess you up. And it's interesting, you know, we always learn from people, but it's I learned what not to do, like, don't miss out on opportunity. So that's kind of a background of just, you know, getting started in the finance industry back in 99 and opportunities that came across where my first deal was learning how to wholesale a single wide to move on up to, you know, buying my first house and then turning that into a rental to start doing some fix and flips, um, got involved in a mobile home development project, which ended up being a 15-year journey at this point. But that's really what got me learning and understanding that you can create a lot of wealth through real estate, um, which kind of led me to our private capital side later on in my mobile home journey when uh, we had the bank after we had made all of our payments on time and put the development in, put the water and sewer in, and they kind of decided they did not want to have a mobile home park on their books anymore. <laughs> so um, I was able to um, go find some really hard and cruel money <laughs> to borrow to uh, get that taken care of and paid off and um, you know went through that. And just at the end of that experience, um, 
was able to really understand like there's got to be a happy medium here. There's got to be that it's a win-win for everybody. And so really kind of started looking at the aspect of how can you do this to where it doesn't take advantage of people, but it helps move them forward. So took a little bit of a uh, self, rolled over to a self-directed IRA, um, really scared at that point. <laughs> like, all right, I'm taking my retirement money, going to go risk it on somebody else, um, which at the end of the day is amazing because he's doing really well at this point. And I learned how to do this a lot better of how to do it. And literally have taken it to where I just rolled over my self-directed IRA to where now we've got a whole network of friends and family that we literally have helped, you know, probably done, you know, lots and lots and lots of deals that have helped people literally create wealth that they are now are able to quit their W-2 job. And that's what's exciting is it's just watching other people's journey move along to where they were, you know, we could say it, a, a slave to the man, yep, basically, yep. to where now they actually have the financial freedom to be with their family and have their time and building their own empire. I know that was a lot. That is, but... well, and that's what's so cool is is your journey. There's so many different facets that we could stop and probably have a show on each one. Yeah. How it went, you know, so that's really cool. Yeah, I, I mean, you have a, a sounds like a, a great wealth of uh, experience in going through and starting all this. So let's kind of break down and get back into every little thing you've got. So the first thing you did uh, was some wholesaling, you said, right? Wholesale single wide when I was in my early 20s, needed some capital. Uh, he said it didn't come, being, a, being a, from a farm family, you know, we we uh, we grew everything, we ate everything. There's never really a lot of capital. Needless to say, it's just, it's very simple. And so not coming from a lot of money, I was trying to uh, figure out how to make money. So um, went and educated myself on how to do a wholesale, was able to wholesale a single wide, which that pivoted me into being able to buy my first home for myself. Um, back in the days of a you know ninety five percent no doc loan five percent down, you just had to come up with the capital as long as you had good credit. So I was able to buy my first house from that, and then f- after living there for a couple years, I was again scared, so I turned it into a Section Eight house because you know at least I knew it was guaranteed income compared to having a renter that you know may or may not pay me. But that was my uh, my first venture into being a per se a landlord from that aspect. Um, mm-hmm. And then from that, just kind of moved into buying some investment properties through different ways, contract for deeds, working out some seller financing, just different options that came across that people wanted to get out of things or just didn't, you know, just just didn't have the desire to be a landlord anymore. And I was just looking to try to grow wealth and just knowing that, you know, 99% of the uh, wealth in this country is through real estate. You know, I just knew that was the right path, but just always had to figure out how to put the deals together. There's always a way. So, and I, I think that's the easiest way to, you know, sum it up. You you were definitely creative, it sounds like, from the very beginning. So doing deals, going straight from a wholesale, where that was your first thing you ever did, to then taking something, the first house you ever had, and turning it to a Section 8 rental. Like, these aren't <laughs> these are not easy things to understand, getting into getting a house and turning it to Section 8, you know, wholesaling a deal. Did you go to a class, or did you just, you know, try and say, oh, man, I'm going to wholesale? Nope, I did. I, I went to a class, so, you know, education. Um, I went to a Catawba College, played football there for a couple of years, 
So I'm going to say my uh, education was more focused on uh, college and sports and uh, <laughs> learning a lot. Um, left there and just knew that I needed to be educated in something that was going to create real estate. So I literally just went read. I mean, I'm a big reader. I remember, I remember the first book that I ever read was called The Wealthy Barber. Um, it's just a story about a barber that you know explained the story aspect of thing. I think I learned better by that, by stories more than... Um, text and trying to memorize things. Yeah. <laughs> it's a little yeah. more entertaining that way. And then just from that, just really tried to immerse myself in reading a lot and going to, um, you know, just any kind of events that, that I could get education on and then how to put those into, into practice. Cool. So I've got a question for you. So for anybody who doesn't understand contract for deed, can you go through when you did that process, what did that look like and how did you set that up? Yeah. So basically what I had is I had a um, couple that they owned a duplex down at Riceville Beach um, that they just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Um, the values, they owed more on it than what than what it was worth. They were tired of managing it. Um, and basically what it, you end up doing is getting under a legal contract that's recorded at the county courthouse that basically states that you are overtaking the liability of that of that liability and you are going to be responsible for all taxes, insurance, and also the maintenance and management of that project, basically. So it removes them from it. So in that agreement, the way we did it to make it perfect, we just started it January 1st, because that way they could have filed their taxes and their expenses against that property going forward on January 1st of that year. Um, I was literally responsible for everything to, to, to do with it. So finding the tenants, fixing anything that needed to be fixed on it, the HVACs, um, just really you know, arbitrage basically from a from a way that the underlying debt was already in place, um, overtook that payment. And the little things that you do, you want to make sure that you put, you know, your address on the mortgage statement. So it's coming to you that you're making that payment directly because you don't want to give somebody else the money and expect that they're going to make the payment on it. So that's probably one of the first things that I would tell you that if you're going to do a contract for deed is change the the address of where the statement goes to, because the mortgage is still staying in their name. So it's, it's a, you know, it's in our legal document. We actually had it that if I missed a payment that literally it would convert back to them. I mean, that was the agreement that I would not, you know, miss this payment. I knew that it was something I wanted to, to, to do is to, to do the contract for deed on this. So do that for a couple of years. Um, Got it sold. Um, the good part about the contract Vita had a cash buyer, so it made it real simple. Um, we just all had to sign off on it. So I was able to make my spread from the amount that I owed on it compared to what the sales price was. So at the time that you you did the contract for deed, they were basically underwater, so they weren't making correct enough. So so your value add is what made the value, or was it a time thing? Correct. The biggest thing for them it was going. They had it on an interest only loan for ten years, and it was going over to a a um, principal and interest payment, mm -hmm. and they just were on a fixed income and they did not want to have to deal with that extra expense. So that's where just kind of looking at the deal, I said, you know what, I'll go ahead and take this over knowing it was going to be an investment. So they didn't have to worry about that interest only payment going to a principal interest, which is almost double what they were used to paying mm -hmm. from a cash flow perspective. And then when you exit, they're already out. So you're, or, or, well, the, the, so you, so let's stay in here on a little bit. So when you take over the mortgage payment, do you have to get approval from the bank 
because the bank is going to now send you the loan payments. And do you need to get approval from the bank? Did the bank underwrite you for taking over no. this? No, nope, no, not at all, because the underlying security instruments there, they had never missed a payment. So all's we did, I mean, literally the statement would come to my house with their name on it, but it had my address. Gotcha. That's all it was. So they just called in and did an address yep. change. All did is an address change. So that's one thing. I mean, there's a couple of things you want to do to protect everybody. At the end of the day, I mean, I always try to put deals together that everybody is winning. I mean, that's what makes it work. So in that perspective is that I was going to overtake this payment because they had no way of getting it refinanced because of where the value was compared to what the balance was. So was able to not affect their cash flow where they didn't have that stress. It gave me an opportunity to have an asset um, that I can manage and add to my portfolio of, of, of rental properties. So outside of the the contract for deed being recorded that I had provision that if I missed a payment, they automatically got it back, even though I'd been beating down the principal. And also the other thing that you want to do to protect yourself is you want to make sure that you put yourself as a second loss payee on the deck page. Because if something was to happen to that property and your name was not on there, guess who's getting the check? <laughs> no yeah. matter how what the agreement was, when there's a couple hundred thousand dollars flying around or even ten thousand dollars, it could lead to a rough conversation. So just in the contract for deed process, you want to make sure that you've got the 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 statement coming to your address so you know what's made every month. And you also want to add yourself as a second loss payee to the insurance because they have to maintain the insurance in their name because they're the one that's also on the mortgage. So you can't go and change your own insurance company. Because then the mortgage company could actually right. call it due. Well, I don't know if they call it due. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, we were doing a deal where the payment was still being made. Were, and, yeah. you know, and we had a provision that if I missed a payment, it would go back to them. So I think in the day, they would have probably just said, hey, what are you doing here? So <laughs> in that initial structure, you set a purchase price for the property that you were buying it from them from or giving yourself an option to buy it at a certain price. Am I right on that? Well, it's not an option. It actually is a contract for deed. So I overtook the balance that was owed on it. So let's just say it was $700,000 owed on it. And at that time, they had had 10 years of interest only payment. And that's why they were using it for cash flow. Well, that was changing. And they just didn't have enough money to because it was now an investment property for them. It used to be their primary residence. So now the loan to value would have caused them to bring like literally $100,000 or plus to the table to refinance it. And so basically at that point, I just said, hey, you know, I'll overtake the new 20-year amortization based off of that balance and be responsible for that payment. So you bought it for what they owed. About exactly for what they owed. They just did not want to bring money to the table. They didn't want to deal with it anymore. Um, so it just, it worked out. I mean, it worked out well for everybody. And when you're walking into a deal like that and you're saying they're upside down on the house. So when you're taking over, let's say, keeping with this $700,000 loan, percentage wise, what would the home or the town home had been valued at? 750 at that time. So there wasn't, okay. if they literally tried to put it on the market, they would have sold it. By the time you paid the agent commissions, they would have got out for what's owed on it. So, you know, they really were just, it's funny working through people, we develop a relationship and we like tried to figure out how to like make it work for them. And it just didn't work. And I just proposed it to them as like, Hey, what do you think about this idea? Because it was no skin off their back to just let me do it because they would have walked away with the same amount at any given point. Anyway, they would have walked away with nothing. So it was just a, a perfect opportunity essentially um, 
for me to walk in because they would have not walked away with anything anyway. And then the upside for them is if you don't make the payment or you default in some manner, then they get the note back, the house back fully in their name, and then can potentially benefit in two years from now that you don't pay it. Correct. With a less principal balance owed on it. Cause I was hammering down the principal at that point. And then when you sell it and the upside, when you're saying you have, a second loss pay on the debt. So in essence, you were taking it for the outstanding loan amount since it was barely worth any more. And that was basically break even. It's what you're in essence buying it for. And they'll say you in that same circumstance, you sold it for 900. You get all the upside and that's in the agreement. Correct. Yep. Right. So awesome. I think- yeah, that's pretty wild. I mean, it's funny, you know, like I said, there's so many, so many pieces to that because then when you go and sell it, they're still on the mortgage. So they have to sign. They have to sign off on at the closing. At closing. Yeah. Right. Interesting. And and see that, that you turned the whatever profit, they get to see the profit that you turned. But like you say, it's, it's taking over a headache. So mm-hmm. that is, there's in commercial, there's such a thing called um, where you have multiple tenants called a master lease, which is, Similar to something like that, in essence, I would say that could be a contract for deed type of situation, right? Where you would guarantee them the same amount of payments, whatever you say the payment around would be either equal to what there is now or adding more in a certain time frame. But in that circumstance, I think you're setting a purchase price at the initial Contract stage, yeah. if I'm right on Yeah, that. yeah, it's just setting that price and it's a contract for deed. So it's kind of different than a, I think a lot of people call it subject to right now, where the contract for deed is literally, this is a contract that I will own the deed once it's paid off. Right. So that's why I like to call it the contract for deed. Do you got all that, Cameron? You got any other questions about that? Oh, I got it all. I, I've already made three calls right now. I'm on, I got two things under contract. And Cameron's been over there yeah. texting, making deals go. No, it's kind of a, and it sounds like, you know, almost the same in the commercial. It's a distressed situation. They weren't necessarily in trouble, but there was really no upside for them to have it. Right. So there was you know, just, they'd already done what they'd been cash flowing for 10 years. They had had everything that they needed from it, it served its purpose. And now it was just like, how do we get rid of it? And you found them, how did you source them? Were they coming to you for refinance information? And then that's where you led to the relationship? Yeah, it was, a, they were business owners and okay. we had done some other things and um, just relationship wise, they kind of brought it up. Here's what we're dealing with and just kind of just worked it out. That's the, I think that's probably one of the reason at the end of the day, they did it with me because we had already had a relationship. Yeah. It wasn't me just you know, like, Hey, what do you think about this idea yeah. without knowing you? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's great. And the other thing is, you know, this is direct to the source. It's a little different. You know, it, it's hard to get into investing for a lot of people because you have to network through and it's really you're not going to drop into a deal like this going looking on the MLS or, you know, searching online through the real estate. It's all about networking and you know, personal relationships with people in order to build that trust, because that's really a big trust factor of somebody giving you that opportunity to do that. No, it does. And and that's where it literally goes back. I mean, you got to pay your dues. Nothing's going to happen quickly. I mean, you really just got to, you know, do this, start off, you know, start off with the wholesale, start learning how to do investment stuff, start, you know, just, just talking, just getting out there. And once you start getting out there and people know what you're doing, when something comes along, they know you're not taking advantage of people that are like, Hey, he's really trying to work it out that it really opens up a lot of opportunity for transactions. Well, with that, let's, let's back up to the wholesale. So tell me, tell me the whole, like I've never under, I've done a wholesale uh, project. So how, so when you had a single wire, tell me how that you kind of flowed through the wholesale process and, and what that means. 
Yeah. So basically what happened is in that scenario there, it was a, it was a single wire that needed some rehab done to it. So I basically went to the seller and said, look, if I rehab this property, because that's all I could afford at that time was, was, you know, basically getting under contract that I would spend, I think it probably spent about $5,000. So I probably got under contract. I'm just gonna do some rough numbers. Probably got under contract for $20,000. Just, you know, let, let me get it under contract. I'm going to come in here. I'm going to fix it. And then I was able to find an in buyer for like 35,000. I mean, like we're not talking big numbers here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think I walked away with like $10,000. That was the most money I'd ever made, oh, yeah. On, yeah. you know, at 20 something years old um, with the sun on the way coming. So it was like, you know, a, a big thing for me um, that it was got under contract, went in there and fixed it up, found a buyer for it. Um, they were able to arrange financing, bought it from me, and walked away from ten thousand, you know, with ten thousand dollars on it. And they bought it from you before you technically enclosed to own it. Correct. Okay, Correct. Gotcha, gotcha. Yep. I had just I basically got under contract, fixed it up, sold and then contract. sold them as the end user. So it was just a, a same day closing with the attorney. Basically, I bought it, sold it, and then the end users' money is what actually paid off the the seller. Again, education. Education, education, yeah. education. So that's that's you going right. To yeah, and that that's gotten a lot, you know, more mainstream now. Back when you did this, and you're saying I think this was in '99. Now that's all over. You're all over the internet. People are getting things under contract. They're throwing them on Facebook, throwing them all over the internet. But you didn't have all that at that <laughs> time, right? So at that time, you had to go network around tell and talk to 50, 100 people to find somebody that was a cash buyer end user that could close. Otherwise, you can get this under contract, have done all that work, and maybe didn't have the money at that age to close and could have lost everything. It's the risk. I mean, that goes back to my, you know, my grandparents of what not to do, (laughs) learning that at least try to make every opportunity work. I mean, you can create your own luck. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, I think wholesaling is... um, Great way to get into the business for somebody that doesn't have a lot of money. A hundred percent. I mean, that's yeah. when we talk to people every day. I always try to figure out, you know, what do you have? What do you really have as your assets right now? Because you're either going to start off from, if you if you need to build up your assets, you either need to wholesale because it's easy to get under contract. You're going to do some hard work or you need to do a fix and flip because there's no point trying to build a rental portfolio if you don't have, you know, and everybody has a different number, whether it's 20, 30, 50, that's put away. That makes you sleep well at night and not be stressed because in the, the day, you know, we, it, it's all about not having the stress because we, we we still need to be able to function at a high level yeah. <laughs> and not have that level of stress. So, you, and I've gone through that. I was really, I had a goal to be a millionaire by 30, which I hit, but it was all net worth. Right. I didn't realize it. And then from 30 to 40, it was still at a million. I'm like, wait a minute, what am I doing wrong here? And so it, it, it really understood what I really got to understand is you got to have an equal balance of cash net worth and net worth because having just all net worth that you don't have access to it unless you literally have to sell it or force to sell it that's not being right and the thing is with net worth is it's it's a balanced number but typically when you try and cash that balance right it's it's not that easy to get so that (laughs) net worth is a great number to look at people are always like yeah the net worth look at your net worth yeah net worth but then if you if you have to fire sale to get to that money to access that money you're probably not going to get that right yeah so you know there's a lot of kind of movement in that number that people would want to build it up because you'll say well this is worth this much so this makes my net worth this much but then if you get in a bind and typically when you're yeah. in a bind and you got to sell it you're taking a lot less than what it's actually worth well, i'm a multi-millionaire because my trailer that i bought is now worth 
2.5 million. I can't sell it. And that's what it's worth. <laughs> to your point. So that, that makes but sense. But it comes with how many acres of land? Hell yeah, yeah. yeah. Quarter. A quarter acre. Yeah. yeah. But, I mean, that's really the, the lessons to teach people is you've got to build your cash net worth at the same time that you're building your net worth. And it's not literally sitting it in there in cash. It's having it in a stock portfolio that you can put a line of credit against or something like that, that it's still working for you as another wheel on the bus. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. So let's get into a little bit of the other stuff. So you do with your capital company, go through a, a little bit of who you work with typically and what services you offer. Yeah. So, I mean, we're just, we're, we're, we're small. We actually like to start working off with, we like to start working with people that are just getting started or have just a few under their belt because at least it gives them an opportunity that they usually wouldn't have. So we have started off with, um, one gentleman that literally started off with a double-wide manufactured home, which could, he couldn't find anybody that would give him private capital for a manufactured home transaction. So we've been able to work with him from day one. He's Him and his dad actually worked together. They've been doing everything that they needed to do, and they have literally over the last three years um, gone through and been able to fix and flip um, mobile homes. They actually just closed on a 18-unit uh, apartment complex where he bought it right. Um, is rehabbing it right and is walking in. We're literally, I mean, we're funding him 100% on the total project because he's creating that value add into it. So literally, um, I, I want, as long as you're willing to put the work in, find the deal and really just bring it to us and let's make sense of it. Um, you know, our job is to, you know, make sure we're protecting the gold basically um, of, of, of our capital that's moving. But we also want to make sure that it's going to be successful for you at the end of the day. I mean, we'll do a subject to appraisal, make sure that we're under 75%. So, you know, if you're buying it for hundred, you're rehabbing it for 50 and it's the ARVs at 200, that's perfect. I mean, at that standpoint, we'll literally finance you a hundred percent of that transaction because we know that the purchase price is right. We've got everything on a draw schedule and we've got the capital held back to finish the project. You know, God forbid something happened. Um, that that you weren't able to, we, we've got it there that that we can finish the project. So just yeah, trying to put I all mean, the safety guards in place for everybody. I, I think I'm switching. I'm going to start just using him to, you know, I'm going to go fix and flip right away. So, <laughs> right, I, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great. I mean, that's really good. That's really. Good. Yeah, I mean, have, have you seen in this market? I know that was that was booming two years ago, the fix and flip. So, have you gotten in any trouble? I know some of the guys that I know that were in that you know lending environment have gotten. Some had some troubles, I think, on some of the guys that were into it newer. Have you guys stayed pretty consistent? I know what markets do you all work in? Yeah, no, I mean, for us, it's a relationship. I and mean, I really spend some time getting to know the person because literally, I will, I, I will, I always call it kind of getting financially naked. I mean, I need to understand who you are first. Let's have that conversation first. Yeah. Then we can talk about and be project specific. So really get to understand who they are and we'll give them the recommendation that if they don't have access to capital, they don't have capital, you need to need need to get something in place, understand what we're working with. Because, I, you know, I want to make sure that if something did pop up, that they have a way of fixing it. I mean, you know, we don't want them coming back to the well, needless to say, like, oh, now this popped up. So we always try to make sure that there's something there that they've got access to that can give them some capital. Um, so let's do this. Let's walk through a potential deal and okay. understand how something like this is structured. So for an example, let's say we've got um, a 
four unit multifamily deal that we found. The initial price that we're seeing is uh, that they're selling it's 350,000 on a multifamily deal. And we've walked through, we're budgeting a renovation of 75,000. And you've talked to me a few times, don't know much about me, but you've talked to me a few times and this is the deal I'm bringing to you. I think the after repair value of this is 550,000. So 350 purchase, 75 in renovations and 550 is the after repair value. So walk us through, somebody's coming to you like that, walk us through what are your steps and how does that work? Yeah, I mean, so basically right off the bat, just, hey, do you have experience doing this before? Have you ever done this? You know, or is this just something that you're wanting to to do? Because if you're going to go to tackle a big project like that, I will sometimes walk people back like, hey, why don't we do a single family first? Real simple, real easy. You know, you can always get rid of those if you have to. Um, so that's the first thing I do is what is your experience level? Just really finding that out. Um, from that, finding out what assets they have access to. You know, do they own their house right now? Um, if they have equity in their house, which everybody's been, you know, over the last couple of years, everybody's been gaining equity. Um, if they have equity in their house, say, look, go get a home equity line. You know, introduce you to somebody. At least I know you got 50 grand on a home equity line. If you run into something, you're not going to be stressed out about it. So just understand what they're working with. Do they have money in their checking savings account? Do they have money in in, in, in their primary residence? Um, from that, what we'll do is get it under contract. I always tell people to go get a home inspection. Even though your contractor is going to go out there and give you all the cosmetic things they're going to do, that home inspector is going to be the one that finds the things that nobody can see. So get it under contract, get your home inspecting, get your cosmetic stuff done, give it to the contractor, find out what the total cost is going to be. From that, we're going to take that and we're going to go do a subject to appraisal with an appraiser. And basically in this scenario that you had, I think you said 550. Mm-hmm. Um, and so 75% of 550, anybody good on math here? <laughs> I, I, I got to carry the one. I got to carry the one. So $412,000. All right. So $412,000, that'd be our loan amount, max loan amount that we would give you. So you're purchasing it for how much? So, so this is so four, we're at 425. It's 350 and 75. So we're at 425. So by your math, we would only have to come out of pocket 12,500. Correct. Plus your closing cost. Yep. Yep. So very minimal into it. Yeah. Because um, we're going off that ARV. And I always try to find out like, look, are we doing this as a fix and flip or are we doing this as a, a, a value added rollout to a DSCR loan or an Airbnb loan or some kind of commercial loan? Because that exit strategy kind of determines too where I need to be. Because if we're going to be where we're going to want to roll it out, I'll probably pull it back a little bit, like 70% to 72.5%, just because I need to leave some room to be able to put the closing cost into the refinance of it. Gotcha. Okay. And so if somebody's doing one of these and got a 75 rehab budget, walk us through how that works. So basically what we're looking at is at the closing table, we're going to take down the purchase price pay off the seller. We'll go ahead and supply, we will supply the capital to buy the materials. And then after that, we already had a laid out um, project timeline of when you were going to be expecting draws. And so whenever you're expecting your draw, because after that, it's on a work completed basis. You know, we're not going to give you the money and going, good luck. This turns out. Initial scheduled timeline and Every time they request a draw, you send a third-party inspector, I'm assuming, to go through and verify work has been completed, materials are on ground in order to release more money. Correct. Yep. Awesome. And then you guys carry the loan after the renovation? 
So after the renovation is done, if they're fixing and flipping, of course, they're selling it, they're mm-hmm. out, we're done with it. Um, on the commercial side, I have um, different investors. So we're a broker when it comes to that, a commercial broker. So we have institutions that we work with that will do 30-year fixes, um, 40-year fixes, interest only, just lots of different products. It just depends on what the capital market's appetite is. Um, but the good part with those kind of loans, we only look at the project. We don't get into their personal income. It's all about the cash flow of that property, mm-hmm. period. So, so um, that helps the new person that doesn't have that whole huge, like correct. you were saying before. Okay. Correct. Yeah. And, and we tell people like, look, I mean, if you're just using us for the value add and you're bankable, go to the bank. They're going to give you a five-year arm on a 20-year amortization with a great rate. Um, most of ours are going to be to where they're set it and forget it loans. Uh, most of them are going to be anywhere from 20 to a 30-year fix. It's going to be where you never have to worry about requalifying because that's the one difference. I mean, I, I kind of brought up that on my mobile home park that, you know, having a, a, a bank call your note sucks. Mm. There's no better way of putting it in matter. I've made all my payments, done everything I'm supposed to do. And now you're telling me you want me to write you a check for millions of dollars and I don't have that. So I, from a learning lesson standpoint, I always try to look at the the difference between what can you get. And I have some some good relationships with banks that I literally will send people there, go get the terms and know knowing you're going to have to requalify for that every five years because it's a balloon compared to what does it look like that if you can set it, forget it, and never have to worry about it again. What is that spread and is it worth it that you can just be done with it? Yeah. People's people's you know appetites and financial situations change vastly in five year periods. Yep. Right, five years is a long time. <laughs> yeah, and not having to requalify is, is huge because I mean you, you don't really you you may be going a completely different direction anyway. So you know looking at that piece, yeah, and a lot of those loans loans can be assumable too. So right, which is the good part of it. So even if you are um, if you if you put it in place and you just say want to exit it. I mean, the issue always is the difference between where you want to sell it compared to what's owed on it. That's kind of the mm-hmm. thing with assumable loans is a seller going to make up that difference because we still have to to qualify them at the end of the day. But that's always the the the, the bad part about assumable is how do you make up that difference? Because nobody really wants to step in on a mezzanine or second financing on a purchase. On a purchase, yeah. right. <laughs> yeah. And that's a, a lot of what, you know, the expectation is right now with the commercial uh, mortgage market right now, there's a ton that are coming up, you know, with these balloon loans that are be coming up in the next year to two years. I don't know exactly what the latest, is, but we've, we've brought that up before. So that's going to create a lot of pinch in that market. So, you know, with what you're seeing, do you see anything on the horizon that gives you pause? Well, I mean, from that standpoint, with banks pulling back right now, and it's some bankers that I know and I've talked to, I mean, let's say they, they're they're pulling back to like 65% mm-hmm. on projects and stuff. And I think we've got, what, 25% of the whole commercial loans are coming due here in the next, you know, 18 to 24 months. Um, a lot of that's going to, you know, bring in the opportunity for partnerships to be established. Um, it's kind of one way that I, I see a lot of that happening. Um just from a standpoint that that people have had these projects for a while and maybe they're wanting to to bring in a capital partner to basically, hey, bring in some capital, pay it down to the new loan to value that the banks are going to be at. And again, who who knows what they're going to do? I mean, they they can they can uh you know set their own rules at any given moment, but at the end of the day, they still got to make yield for their customers and keep those deposits moving. So hopefully we won't see anything crazy happen through that that it'll keep the commercial market stabilized. But at the end of the day, it's it's like I said, it's just going to be about the relationships that you have with the existing people you have or are developing, and 
that there may be some opportunity that arises. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really good. So what are you looking to help people out with right now? Are you still focused on mainly fix and flips with residential homes? I know you're doing some apartment deal. You just said an 18-unit apartment deal. So if people are looking to connect with you and maybe work deals with you, are, are those your sweet spots? They are. I mean, I would say that the, predominantly the, the the fix and flip is a big piece of it because that's where you're going to f- get the deals these days. I mean, you're not going to find something on the open market that's a deal. I mean, if you're going to create some sweat equity, it's going to be because you have to do some work to it. And so it's either helping people create that cash worth until they can have enough room to do the net worth, or if they've already got their cash worth, cr- expanding their net worth through through long-term holds on these or Airbnb holds, stuff like that. But we don't, you know, we we look at everything pretty much 35 units and less is really our market. Because once you get above 35 units, you kind of start getting into the big boy world. Um, so we are our, our specialty, I guess, would be the, the, the small fix and flip um, up to the 35 unit or less apartment complexes. And do you have maximum loan amounts that you're looking at for people? Is that just based on the capital markets? Yeah, it just depends on the capital markets and what their appetites are at that point. It's and it's always changing. I mean, the thing about a commercial deal, I mean, you go into it's not like a residential deal that you just quote the rate and here's what it is. A commercial deal is literally when all the pieces are pulled together. Okay, here are your terms now based off of you know the DSCR, the cash flow of it, and the expenses that have come up. So it just I always tell them like, look, I mean, going into it, here's what we're expecting it to be at the end. Um, there's always going to be something that pops up that, that that's in the middle, um, but it's just about communication and hey, here's what changed and here's why, and you know, here's what the new terms will look like. And sometimes it can get better, and sometimes it can get worse. And what areas do you guys focus on? So for fix and flip, I like to stay here in North and South Carolina. I grew up in North Carolina, so I kind of got somebody all over the state that's a contractor somewhere, all the way from Boone to Charlotte, you know, to here. Um, And then for our DSCR and Airbnb loans and um, even some of the bigger institutional projects, um, we pretty much do all across the country. I think there's like two or three states that are like, you know, North Dakota or Wyoming or something like that, that that we just don't, the, the, the population is not there to to, to do those for the institutions. Cool. So if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, my cell phone number is <laughs> probably the easiest. All right, what's that? Uh, 910-200-8859. And what's your company's website at? Uh, mccapitalfunding.com. Okay. And are you on social media at all? I'm on my phone a lot. <laughs> yeah, phone's gonna be it. The text. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. just it's, it's texting, uh, texting on the phone's great. Okay, well, we'll put all that in the show notes. Um, and I sincerely appreciate you joining us today. Is there anything else you want to give us for any tidbits of information, any insight that we should know about? No, uh, first of all, Tony and Cameron, I appreciate you having me on here. You know, it's Absolutely. always good to get out here and you know talk talk shop and talk business yeah. and how we can help people. And the only thing I would do is just people listen to this is challenge them. I mean, go and get uncomfortable. Go try to. You know, do something that doesn't feel right or doesn't feel like that, you know, the norm, I guess, is a good way of putting it. 
and uh, just get out there and, and and call us and and like here's what I got. How do you know? How can we do this? I mean, the good part is like you said, back 20 years ago, there was no social media. There was not mm-hmm. a lot of education that's out there. Mm-hmm. Um, go and get yourself just educated. I mean, there's a well, lot. Well, just groups. coming to you alone is you know with your experience, someone could come to you and in, in the education you're gonna wish we showed them today. And and every time someone brings you a deal, I'm sure they get educated. So yeah. uh, that that's hugely helpful. So thanks so much. And yeah, without risk, there is no reward. One hundred percent. Thanks again. Hey, you guys. Thanks for watching. Thanks, guys. Talk, talk to you soon. Have a great day. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Carolina Commercial Real Estate Connection. You're officially one step closer to conquering the market. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss a future episode. For more information or to connect with Tony and Cameron, check them out online at www.timelessci.com. We'll see you next time.